Our scripture tonight is 1 John 5, 13 to 21. 1 John 5 through uh, 13 through the end of the book. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. 1 John 5, 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So you wouldn't know it from our current weather, but in the next few weeks, winter will pass and spring will be upon us. And as winter passes, the cold and rain and the sparsely leaf trees will be chased away with the warmth of the SoCal sun. And the landscape will grow lush with green foliage and a spectrum of colorful fruit trees and flowering things will blossom and bloom. Some green-growing things will respond to spring faster than others, though. If fruit trees had feelings... Some slower-blooming California avocado tree may feel frustrated and humbled amidst an orchard of healthy crops that ripened early. Maybe that little avocado tree just needs a bit more time and sun and water and nutrients, while others are ready sooner to be harvested for hungry hipsters and coffee shops throughout the land. Well, as far as the healthy emotions of avocados go, one might empathize with that tiny tree struggling with confidence that it will ever be big and healthy and blooming with avocados. But if that little guy begins to wonder, what if I'll never be a real avocado tree? What if I come to find that I'm only bearing a few avocados because I'm really a drain tree? I must, maybe I just stink and I'm not really what I thought I was. Well, you wouldn't have to be an avocado psychiatrist to recognize the evidence being overlooked here. That modest avocado tree may not be bearing as much fruit as it would like, but it is bearing avocados. It is an avocado and not a drain tree. Well, as pitiful as that petite avocado tree may sound, we conclude this letter tonight written by the Apostle Paul to Christians who face a similar struggle with confidence. John wants us to understand that it's one thing to struggle with the speed of our sanctification. That humility can even be healthy. However, even while you're striving against sin, 
shirking our confidence in our union with Christ is not humble at all. In fact, it's borderline idolatry. So John's concluding thoughts tonight begin with a clear statement of his purpose in writing the whole book. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John's gospel has its clear statement of purpose in John 20, 31. He wrote that book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there, John primarily wanted to stoke belief. And here, he primarily wants to fortify it. He doesn't want us to slowly fortify confidence, though, as if it were linked to our sanctification. He wants us to understand that at the initial signs of new life, we may take hold of full assurance and that all of the benefits of Christ are ours from regeneration to glorification. Thus far, then, John has shown us how in the greatest tests of confidence that we may face, we don't need to be super-Christians to persevere in assurance that we are in Christ. For one, John said that confidence can be ours in the face of false teachers seeking to puff us up in pride like them. The church John was immediately addressing in the first century faced a culture where some denied that the pursuit of righteousness matters at all because they believed a physical and spiritual realms were two completely disjointed things. We can live in debauchery on Saturday and then come to church on Sunday and we don't need to feel any tension between those two things. John said, no, the light was made manifest in the flesh. Flesh and spirit can be joined and good and even more in sync than the 90s boy band. And Jesus proves this because he is very God of very God, very light of very light, made manifest in the flesh. On the other side of the spectrum from debauchery, the early church faced purity sects. These were the early don't drink, don't smoke, and don't go with girls who do churches. Some insisted on circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law, even in the New Covenant. And others believed that after being converted, we no longer sin, or that we can go for long stretches without sinning. John bolstered the church against these proud fools and cut straight to the point. They are liars. If you say that you're without sin, you are a liar. Those who say they have been born to new life and walk in light, but proclaim such darkness, are a walking contradiction. The Christian will have a natural aversion to such dishonesty at such a fundamental level. God is not a liar. He walks in the light, and therefore he must confess of himself honestly that he does not sin. And as his children walking in the reflection of his light, we must confess honestly of ourselves that we do sin. Only those still in darkness believe that our growth and obedience doesn't matter at all or that we have already arrived at perfection. At the inception of our new life, we must know that our justification precedes our sanctification so we can expect to be works in progress. Then, in the light of our messy progress, our hearts are directed to rejoice and find confidence in Christ as he advocates to the Father for us every messy step along the way. So the false teachers are wrong when they confident, and we can confidently face them. 
And, John said, we can also confidently face our Lord in the final judgment. We need not fear that day, for Jesus drank the cup of wrath that we deserved to the dregs. So instead of wrath, we look forward to celebrating a reunion of the whole family of God, receiving rewards, and worshiping God together forever. Plus, John has even equipped us to face perhaps our toughest critic, the man in the mirror. John said that even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And there we learned an important clarification. Confidence is not the foundation of our justification and our right standing with God. God's gift to us of even small faith like a mustard seed, even if boldness is fleeting. Boldness is a benefit of new life and not the foundation. Confidence can and should be our normal experience, but seasons of frail faith may be experienced by genuine Christians. Trust in these basic truths, then, is sufficient for us to be confident that we have new life, that it has been granted to us, that it is being worked in us, and that it, and that it will continue until the day that we awake to be like Christ. No matter what unorthodox, proud schemes or heresies the spirit of this age comes up with, then we may have confidence that this is the message that the apostles have taught us from the beginning. But as the 2 a.m. commercials would say back in the day of cable and commercials, that's not all, folks. As we progress in the faith, the light of new life will shine forth in our hearts, not just in knowing and believing truths about who God is and his redemptive plan for us, but also in the practice of loving one another. As we see the physical needs of our brothers and sisters, we will be more and more inclined to lend timely and practical help, even at great expense to ourselves, just as Christ was willing to lay down his life for us. And as our hearts are more and more set on loving God's people, our confidence that we are his will be reinforced, just as Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister. And so now, in this closing chapter, we see John do one of his trademark moves one more time. He'll take what he's been teaching, rotate these topics to a slightly different viewing angle, add one or two more elements, and cause us to consider all of it freshly and perhaps more deeply. And so where before we were faced with false teachers and the final judgment in ourselves, John will wrap things up by revisiting the idea of our facing God in confidence, but this time not in the final judgment, but in prayer. We have a template for it in the Lord's Prayer, but we may also come to prayer with speechless groans because prayer often starts with that gut punch of humility. It is no nonchalant thing to enter into the heavenly holy of holies. A spotlight is immediately shined on our thoughts and our intentions, on our will to accomplish whatever we have prioritized for the day and for whatever reasons, good or bad, that we have for prioritizing them. And for many, it's common to only pray in times when confidence is failing, when our hearts are weak and our path is bumpy or unclear. At those times, often all that comes to mind is, Lord, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. 
And if you can think of nothing else to pray, that's a really good one to start with. But John says it doesn't have to be that way. Prayer doesn't primarily have to involve dejection or be a last resort when something is falling apart. So we read in verses 14 and 15, this is the confidence or boldness that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, prayer has many functions. It's, it's basically essential to every aspect of our Christian life. In prayer, we enter a dialogue with God. We consider his word and internalize it. We process our happy and difficult providences in life. We express our thanks. We make all manner of requests for ourselves and others. We fellowship with the Father and the Son in new life, and we worship our Creator and Redeemer. John zeroes in, though, on two particular aspects of prayer that uniquely relate to having confidence that we are in Christ. One aspect he focuses on is petitioning God, that is, making requests of God. And the other aspect has to do with how our understanding of the will of God will inform our petitions. So, If we know how to categorize our desires as in sync with his revealed will or in opposition to his revealed will or possibly or possibly not in line with his secret will, we can petition God with less timidity and more boldness. Now, unfortunately, many modern evangelicals spend a lot of time trying to divine God's secret will. And a lot of confusion and heartbreak ensues in their lives because of it. I spoke to a very well-meaning Navy corpsman recently who loves God and who had dreamed all of his life of being a Navy SEAL. He went to Navy SEAL school, endured the grueling training there, was selected for his dream job, and then had an unexplicable experience in prayer that troubled him, where he was sure that God was telling him not to take the job. Confused and frustrated, but wanting to follow the will of God, He got out of the service and is now struggling to find direction in his life. Decisions like that where you have no clear revelation from God's word, whether you specifically ought to turn right or left in your career, ought to be made by thinking through those things and the wisdom of them. And then we're free to choose what we desire, as long as it's not clearly opposed to God's will. That is, as long as it's not immoral or specifically prohibited in the word of God. If you find that something you want falls into those categories of being immoral or against the word of God, just don't pray for that. If you feel you have peace about it, or even if you feel you have peace about it, which may shock some to hear that there is no such thing anywhere in the Bible about how to divine God's will. Now, Scripture from cover to cover is the handbook for God's revealed will and how to pray in that. There is no comprehensive, concise list of potential prayers then that can be more profitable than just studying the whole of Scripture. However, I can recommend the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism to you if you want to boost in upgrading your prayer life. In it, you will find a very beneficial verse-by-verse breakdown of the Lord's Prayer. And you find, for example, that when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we are confidently asking 
that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that God's kingdom of grace may be advanced by ourselves and, and others being brought into and kept in it and that this kingdom of glory may be hastened. When we ask for such things, we know our God's will. We know that God hears us and we have what we ask. We may not know how fast they will come, but we can know that they are ours and that they will come in time. But if you really, really want to give attention to a prayer posture that will put the cherry on top of our confident Sunday, look at verse 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say we should pray for that. Now, John uses, has uh, used this phrase once before, if anyone sees his brother. But there, it was in the context of a physical need. And John said that the new life in you is not going to want to ignore that need and pretend to care with empty words. But rather, it will prompt you to supply their needs if possible. Here, the phrase, if anyone sees his brother, is referring to spiritual needs. I love this passage from Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis writes about the enemy tempting a son to only pray for super spiritual things for his mother's sal- like his mother's salvation, but never for any practical things like his mother's arthritis. John echoes here that we should pray for people's physical needs as well as spiritual, but he does sort of culminate this book with a charge to pray for the spiritual restoration of a slipping brother. So treating others as you would like to be treated when you are struggling, and helping your sinning brother back to the path of life and confidence in Christ will have the effect of bolstering your own confidence that you are in Christ. It's no wonder, then, that the Lord's Prayer begins with a first-person plural. Our model prayer is for one another. So if you face a melancholy that comes from struggling to fight the good fight, Bring your brothers and sisters who are likewise struggling to the Lord in prayer. Turn your eyes for a time from your lowly situation and look around. One of the most real and mature things that we can come to realize in this life is that everyone around you is going through more than you know. Everyone is struggling with either some sin or some hard providence. Everyone. So pray for each other to hold fast to Christ, and especially pray for those that you know have seen the light of new life and are caught in sin. Because as you do, your heart will be precisely in line with the will of the Father who sent his Son for them, the Son who lived and died and advocates for them, and the Spirit who awakens them to new life. And as you get to know one another more, and learn the similar ups and downs that are common among us, you'll find confidence that your plight is known well by God. He is not surprised. Many of his children are facing similar trials. You are not alone. But now we have to ask, right? What's the sin that leads to death? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not 100% sure. But I do feel pretty confident about what it is. I'll tell you with confidence what it is not, and I'll tell you what the most prevalent views are that make some sense, and I'll tell you what I see as making the most sense. I will say that uh, this also off the bat, to de-escalate to de- any tension um, that the unknown could cause here, 
whatever the sin to death is, it's not John's main point. And he likely didn't even think it was controversial to his original audience. He moves over it quickly. He provides no comprehensive explanation. Then he gets right back to his larger point about confidence. Therefore, it is absolutely not going to be something that should make you lose your confidence right in the home stretch of the book. So it's certainly not what will first come to mind for anyone with a Roman Catholic background. These are not venial and mortal sins as conceived of by Rome. They look at this last verse in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death, and they ironically introduce a confidence-demolishing theology, so much so that for them, the concept that we can be simultaneously justified and yet still sinners does not compute. They pejoratively call justification by grace alone through faith alone, a legal fiction. And they have turned away from this plain and fundamental teaching of Scripture, fear of failing out of a state of grace with God has become normative for them. And so such inventions as purgatory and last rites have necessarily emerged to quell the fear that they have without the power of the gospel. Because for them, a mortal sin is essentially a big sin that puts you out of a state of grace before you die. Suicide, for example, then would send you right to hell. Meetings were held, and the consensus was made among the Romanists. Saving yourself through storing up enough merit and doing enough penance, or you will go to hell, is not very encouraging or confidence-building. So let's give the people a purgatory cushion between here and hell where they can have extra time to make themselves acceptable to God. One huge problem among many in this scheme is that it doesn't take sin at all seriously enough. All sin deserves hell apart from the atoning work of God or of Christ. So purgatory ends up both having too low of a view of sin as well as a low view of what it means when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Another very popular view of these two verses, even among many Protestant commentators, is that John is speaking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here. There appear to be a couple of problems with this view, though, as well. For one, it's questionable whether anyone but those present with Christ, as he worked clear miracles before those who knew the Old Testament can today blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing such a clear, unique, miraculous sign of God to the devil. What those religious leaders did in calling the work of Christ the work of the devil is staggering and likely unique evil in redemptive history. Another view that some Reformed folks tend to lean toward is the idea that our actions have consequences. And if we commit a capital offense like murder that leads to death, we should not necessarily pray that the civil magistrate dismiss whatever temporal legal punishments a guilty Christian may incur from the government. This view has some merit in that capital punishment uh, for murder is not unbiblical. John's audience also would likely not have found this highly controversial. But it's hard for me to see how John would have made, would have made more clear 
or why John would not have made more clear that we still ought to pray for their restoration and renewed confidence in Christ, even if we ought not object to capital punishment. I think John's point here has nothing to do with any of these views, though, and is simpler and more organic to the text. It seems to make more sense to see John telling us not to pray for them to have confidence in Christ in any way other than all the ways he has been telling us to have confidence in Christ. If we have a brother mired in sin, who we believe we have seen the light of Christ in, do not pray that they would find joy again apart from confessing their sin and seeking to practice righteousness afresh and leaning on the mercy of Christ, our advocate, and serving and praying for one another. If we pray that they would just feel better about themselves and seek to bolster their self-esteem without pointing them back to Christ, we are leading them to death. If they are running down the road to destruction unrepentantly, we don't switch up our message to comfort them. We pray for them to be restored properly. They cannot be restored to confidence in Christ walking in unrepentant sin because, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That is, as we have seen, he does not practice sin as the characteristic direction of his life. But he who was born of God, that is, the Son of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. For all who are walking in light and love, as John has described, we may have every confidence that Christ will guard us to the end and our brothers and sisters to the end. No one who has been born of God then can truly apostatize. We should plead for those who are backsliding then with words of life, and his sheep will hear his voice. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So as we get to experience this confidence that Christ has, that Christ has us in his hands, knowing that we cannot be snatched away by the evil one, may we not tickle the ears of those who seem to be slipping away with impotent prayer. Because, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given to us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. John is wrapping up this letter here with several strong affirmations, reaching back to key points of the book. For one, he reminds us that Jesus is life incarnate and that our life is in him. In fact, this is the way that early believers in the church commonly identified themselves. Rather than saying, I'm a Christian, which is fine and good, they might say, hi, I'm so-and-so and I am in Christ That has some gravitas to it, doesn't it? Finally, John emphasizes the truth of what we believe and that our, in Christ, and faith and in the true God. And so he concludes in verse 21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What a perfect conclusion to the book that is. Idols twist everything God says in the name of compassion and self-esteem, wisdom, and pleasure, and happiness. But they are all of them deceived who trust in these rings of lies. 
all they can do is spiral their worshipers down into pride and envy and hatred and darkness and death. But John has presented to us the true God, life manifest in the flesh whom the apostles have seen and touched and proclaimed to us. May you never turn to false idols then, so that as Christ guards you to the end, you may likewise watch diligently and guard yourself from finding confidence anywhere but in Christ. Let us therefore hold fast to the message we have heard from the beginning, serving and praying for one another in love. And may we not be dismayed if our fruits grow slowly. That is the fruit. That fruit is no small thing. It is the light of Christ and the kingdom of God breaking forth in you by the grace and the power of God.